Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Good morning, and thank you very much for uh, coming out for uh, Raphael, who's marvelous, marvelous draw. Uh, the image you've been looking at, I'm sure some of you recognize from visits to Rome, or others of you who read Latin uh, know exactly what this is, which is the tomb of Raphael in the Pantheon. Um, we know from a chronicle, uh, it's actually the master of ceremonies for the popes, for both Julius II and then Leo X, um, who records Raphael's funeral. Uh, the funeral, day after his death, his death is April 6th, 1520, the day after procession through Rome, grand procession, his body carried by four cardinals, full regalia, and he was, April 7th, put in what is still his position, the position of his uh, sarcophagus, in the Pantheon. On the lip of the sarcophagus there, you read um, a couplet, an elegiac couplet, written by Pietro Bembo, who was at that point one of the most powerful secretaries to Pope Leo X, brilliant humanist. I mean, much of modern Italian goes back to or uh, really begins with Bembo and his revision systematizing of uh, Italian and reconciling it with residual Latin. And the couplet reads, and this is, I'm not a Latinist. I struggle through it, I'm not a Latinist. This is my own gloss on several different translations that I looked at. Here lies Raphael, very logically. While he was alive, the mother of us, that is nature, feared that she would be surpassed. When he died, nature feared that she would die too. Now, elegant, I wish I could render it, or it, I had not actually found it rendered as a proper couplet with true rhyme, but it gives you a sense. And it is a wonderful metaphor. What is Raphael's um, originality, essence of his style, and essence also of his fame? And let's look at one of his greatest pictures, one of the greatest pictures of his early maturity, which is familiar, I'm sure, to all of you, or practically all of you. It is the National Gallery's own Alba Madonna, so-called because it comes from the Spanish uh, House of Alba, Dukes of Alba, uh, around 1510. So as I say, early maturity for Raphael. And it epitomizes or corresponds, I think, beautifully to expands on that couplet and this uh, Raphael's importance. Uh, first and most obviously, Raphael's painting, Raphael's art, involves an unprecedentedly sensitive observation of reality. There are great painters of every kind before him. I mean, think Mantegna, Bellini, just in the immediately preceding generation. But with Raphael, that is at a new and even more exquisite level of sensitivity. At the same time, there is an extraordinarily subtle artifice. Both natural observation and the power of art and the imposition of a personal style on it. By artifice, what do I mean? Look at this composition. And really, we could, do enough, we could do 45 minutes or more, practically, a seminar just on this painting or any one of Raphael's great paintings. 
but by artifice in this case, the, the sensitivity to natural, uh, to, to observation, I think is apparent. If apparent if you have eyes and decent sight. The artifice, well first, fairly obviously, is the inscription of the, the figural group within that tondo, within the round format, which is the original format. That alone is wonderfully responsive to circumstance and material and accomplished in terms of composition. But then begin to look at the axes also around which, according to which the figures are structured. I mean, certainly you have a subtle vertical axis through that prominent point of knee up through profile, precisely the shadow uh, in the Virgin's profile. So a central axis, that's straightforward. This axis, physically, powerful axis, right from leg, organizing around it, as you see, disparate elements, elements that are disparate in structure and space. That is its own feet. But look at what that is, if that's the primary visual axis, it is seconding, uh, seconding the primary expressive and devotional and theological axis. Those axes on the surface of the picture but then look at the behaviors along those axes. Here you come out, or it implies coming out in space toward, back toward a significant element, the book, continuing back to elbow rest, and then look at how that runs along that same straight line. Dip in, dip back, come back out to the virgin profile. Or back to rhyming of shape, obviously. Shape of the virgin, shape of the virgin's face, relative to the surround. Then look at things like this. You take the very neat horizon. It's not a simple crude line, of course. It's not, even it's breaking up is not, is not obvious. You come from that shore, across the water, straight to the forehead, across the virgin's collar to the opposite shore with just that dip, that concession toward, not even on, the, the pure vertical. Then look at this kind of thing, and I'm not even touching the iconography. Look at this kind of thing, the bushy, the prominent bushy head of the Baptist who announces the advent. And look at that, deep in shadow, a dead pollard. I mean, frequently you're familiar with the symbolism of a broken tree or a broken column is the old order, the old church that is being superseded by the new order, the new church. Look at how Raphael translates that. So, Observation and artifice inextricably woven is what is as extraordinary, even more extraordinary in Raphael's work, is that there is practically no, there is no separating that power of observation, that exquisite rendering of things that are familiar to our eye and recognizable, um, and his own imposition of artfulness. Um, what this means is that with Raphael, there's a, a new, this is a new classicism. There had not been this kind of equilibrium and this kind of perfection. Uh, elevation of form and elevation of sentiment and feeling, the two inextricably woven since classical antiquity. That new classicism that is established by Raphael carries on as a touchstone for Western art for the next 400 years, right into the 19th century. 
and it defines any time an artist is concerned at getting at that kind of ideality. Rendering things that convince us of the um, coherence and beauty of the world and our possibility of experiencing it. Raphael is the touchstone. Raphael's art is the touchstone. I'm showing you a work from about 150 years later, which again, I'm sure many of you recognize or you recognize the style. It's a particularly beautiful uh, Holy Family by Nicolas Poussin, which happens to be in Harvard's museum. And you see the same type. I mean, obviously in the Virgin, you have something that is still residually Raphaelesque. Um, it's reconciled or it's brought in Baroque elements. This is a Baroque translation of that classicism with color more charged, with the optical sensation of it more, uh, more developed, intensified, but the basic structure of composition and that proposition of the ideality a painter or an artist can bring to a work, convincing, of, convincing us of a higher level of reality, a more ideal level of reality, and more elevated feeling, that principle is the same. Contrast that at its origin uh, with, say, a Leonardo or Michelangelo, the great triumvir triumvirate of the high Renaissance, Leonardo, Michelangelo, and then Raphael. Leonardo and Michelangelo convince us of the coherence and the power of their imagination and their way of seeing the world. Raphael is something very different, and classicism is something very different, which again is about convincing us of the world and the world in this more perfect and higher form. And, as I say, that classicism doesn't just continue. It is the foundation of the academy, academic study of art, training in art, and production of art that more and more uh, at that right wing, what becomes over the course of the 18th century a right wing of European style against what at the same by the end of the 18th century is emerging as a true avant-garde, um, that becomes more and more intense, almost exaggerated, even toward, uh, in cases, a caricature over the course of the 19th century. And it's only in the second half of the 19th century that the avant-garde triumphs, and that's when classicism and academic art, at least <coughs> academic art, uh, are superseded in the historiography in the sort of linear or positivistic history of Western art. I'm showing on the right is a capital work of that late academic, of late and exaggerated classicism. It is Ang's uh, portrait, no, but mythological rendering of Raphael at his easel. And there he is with Raphael's profile, um, inspired by or a composite of various renderings of a handsome young man that can be, are usually interpreted as self-portraits in Raphael's art. Um, we have a good sense of what he looked like, and Ang's uh, uh, beautiful stylization is recognizable enough. But he's gone further, and this is a wonderful example of what I mean by this exaggeration uh, of the academic and that uh, uh, almost, not caricature, but an exaggerated classicism. Because Raphael, as you see, is looking to an easel. He has rendered a beautiful young woman whom he, Ang, calls, and is recognized from the 18th century on, or called from the 18th century on, the Fornarina, who was assumed to be, in the accumulating myth around Raphael as well, assumed to be his lover, 
as well as the sitter for this celebrated earlier work in the Palazzo Barberini, the National Gallery uh, in Rome. So there is Ang. It's really a double or almost a triple portrait, which is also a great tribute, of course, to Ang's inventiveness and his reverence, his understanding of that tradition, that academic tradition and classicism. So Raphael carries on. We revere, of course, Michelangelo Leonardo and the other greats, but of the high Renaissance and Michelangelo Leonardo for that singularity of their vision and their ability to convince us of their way of seeing, of their way of interpreting reality. Um, they have the greater, uh, certainly in the 20th century, going in now to the 21st century, they have the greater, I would say, resonance or popular appeal. And some of Raphael, at least, continues pervasive and even toward the campy. Um, on the left is the great so-called Sistine Madonna. This is Raphael at the peak of his maturity and one of his greatest accomplishments in easel painting or on canvas as opposed to fresco. Um, painted for the Church of San Sisto in Piacenza about 1514. And you recognize, or it's child's play, bad pun, I'm sorry, child's play to find the most famous motif within the Sistine Madonna, these Putti leaning, who appear to lean on the lower edge of the painting, and they are, you know, I thought I'd provide an image of <laughs> those Putti, Google it, look anywhere, page after page of those Putti living on in every form. And I give you a particularly up-to-date form. I figured a coffee cup would be fun, but it's even better. It's a water container with the Sistine Putti grinning and leaning, Raphael pervades our imagination, even if he is not the name celebrity, perhaps, and that's, I'd like to think, part of why you are all here today, drawn by that. Um, but it is the pervasiveness of his ways of making art, approaching representation, and composition, and of course, individual motifs that still pervade uh, our experience. So, Really, and you, you know, um, the now it's not just habit, it's almost the rule for museums to honor the major artists on anniversaries of births and deaths. We just had marvelous Tintoretto on 350th anniversary of birth, um, and so on and so forth. It's a constant cavalcade. With Raphael, for the reasons I've been sketching, or you already appreciated. With Raphael, it's more appropriate to recognize the anniversary, in this case, of his birth. And come this April 6th, it will be precisely um, 500, uh, of his death, and it'll be precisely 500 years since that ceremony in Rome. Um, the major events, the major exhibitions to celebrate this anniversary will be March 5th, opening in Rome at the Scuderie del Quirinale, Italy's principal ex temporary exhibition space, which is in the dependence of the president of Italy, right up on the Quirinal Hill, there will be an exhibition of Raphael with about 200 works in all media. That'll be on through early June. And then come October, beginning of October, I think it's the third, National Gallery London will have a nearly as large and National Gallery London, if it only showed its own paintings with the British Museums or Britain's best drawings, that would itself be magnificent. 
Um, the National Gallery is participating in both with key loans. The Alba Madonna is already packed. If you go up to M20, after this lecture, you may have seen in recent days, you go up to M20, and the Alba Madonna is already packed, and she'll be on her way to Rome to the Scuderia's exhibition within a matter of days. Um, and then one of the gallery's five drawings, five autograph drawings by Raphael, is going also to the exhibition in Rome. So we're participating in that fashion. Our thought, given our schedule, given our demands, given budget, given all, given all considerations, given above all the quality of Raphael in our own collections, we thought simply present those, call greater attention to those. That is why, well, M20, there is a view of Gallery M20, which I know is familiar to you, with four of our five paintings by Raphael. And to go with it in a gallery about oof, 100 feet from here, uh, G22, the former Hammer Gallery, that little pocket of about three to 400 square feet on the ground floor, we have put up, just opened last week, an exhibition with four of the five, the four drawings that are not going elsewhere, four of our five drawings by Raphael. What's more, our finest drawings by his three greatest followers, and we'll come to them in a moment, and some of our finest impressions of the prints, principally engravings after Raphael's compositions. That together is modest in scale, modest in number, modest in scale. However, quality of what we are showing you by Raphael and circle, as the title implies, uh, is impeccable. And I think the way we have presented, especially the prints and drawings, will give you um, a sense beyond beyond the beauty, beyond the art behind the name, um, how Raphael's art uh, came to be and came to have the kind of influence and fame that it did. The paintings, even just those four that are up in the gallery now, fantastic range. The core years of Raphael's development when the execution of his paintings was exclusively or overwhelmingly his own. And by that, this is parentheses looking forward, by that I mean Raphael, with fantastic success, at tender age, had what is probably the largest workshop of any artist of the 15th or 16th century, reported to be about 50 assistants. The more successful Raphael was, the more assistants he took on, the larger the shop became. The larger the shop, the more assistance, the more the execution of his designs fell to them. The gallery's five paintings all fall, again, within that period of his exclusive or virtually exclusive execution. And they range from, this is earliest to latest, the lovely little St. George panel, which I hope you know well, which is of miniature fineness. I scaled the two images uh, approximately true to life. The panel of St. George is just about half the height of the portrait of Bindo Altoviti on the right. Bindo Altoviti, the latest of our five paintings, usually dated around 1514, I often wonder, it has been wondered if it isn't even a little later than that. So just the five paintings, you have this 10 years of prime time of Raphael. But more important, look at the range of style. And look what even just these two tell you about the development of Raphael. 
from something in the St. George that is still very additive, each part of the composition absolutely distinct, every detail exquisite. Now, part of that is the small scale, and this intended as an exquisite object, practically like a miniature painting, but that is still where Raphael's mind and hand are in around 1504-1505. This is a 21-year-old creating a luxury item for a very significant patron. But it has still that 15th century additive sense. Whereas you look at the Bindo Alto Viti and we are slipping, we are slipping into greater artifice and away from something that is of natural appearance. And just as important, the psychology is slipping from something that is normative and easily recognizable, slipping into an ambiguity that portends everything that will dominate Italian style first and then European style for the rest of the 16th century, often called mannerism. That is an exaggeration of virtuosity and stylization away from the kind of equilibrium that is that classicism and the foundation of the academic art. So that's the range of the paintings. And then, even more extraordinary, the other three paintings, and again, Alba Madonna have a good trip, um, but the three Madonna and Childs in our collection give a fantastic demonstration, not just of the overall development, overall stylistic development, but how Raphael's mind is working. And it's working in more systematic, more reasoned and systematic fashion as it thinks about style, how style is behaving, and is intensely aware of the styles of other artists, Leonardo first, then Michelangelo, and how he assimilates that. Raphael is a systematic mind of an artist like no other in history. And just these three paintings give you that, I think, absolutely beautifully. Again, we could, we could take 45 minutes or an hour just, uh, just to review those, but it moves from the small Cowper Madonna, which is still, you see, relatively straightforward in axis, position in space, and lovely, but hardly penetrating in psychology, I think it's fair to say. By 1508, and having reckoned with Leonardo, once Raphael goes to Florence, about 1504, we begin to have movement, we have massive form, we have humor, and a psychological instability to the Alba Madonna with the kind of characteristics I was just signaling earlier on. To look at that, I find, is one of the most, it's as modern or contemporary an experience of style and its movement and the reasoning behind that movement as one could have in any art. I would put this against any contemporary series of paintings, or what it brings to mind for me is musical variation. And it has that sense visually but that is also as Raphael was conceiving it and re exploring, researching is really a fair term for it, researching modes, different modes, variations within this most common of all themes in earlier Italian art. And then downstairs, then in G22, our, it's a mere two dozen drawings and prints, not just a view of the two galleries, Look what they add, just talking about these variations on theme and Raphael's reasoning of a motif and reasoned approach to style. Look 
what you could have or look at the implication of the material downstairs relative to those, paint, those three paintings. A small Cooper to the cartoon for the Louvre's, that's not here, uh, the Louvre's Belle Jardiniere, one of the most famous of that series of Florentine, these researches on the theme of the Madonna and Child. We'll come back to the cartoon in a moment. To the large Cooper, to Alba, to Marco Dente, contemporary engraver after Raphael, rendering a painting of the mid-teens, so three to f even four years after the Alba Madonna, increasing complication, onto the last reckoning, Raphael's last composition to reckon with the Madonna and Child, engraved by his regular and incredibly prolific collaborator, Marcantonio uh, Marc Raimondi, in which you see further slippage toward that virtuosity. It's beyond even what you saw in the Bindo Altoviti portrait a moment ago. Slippage towards something that is a virtuoso demonstration of composition, an architecture that is not recognizable, barely recognizable as architecture, more as pure form and geometry, a stereotomy that could be out of, it could be out of Poussin, looks even toward a Cezanne or something modernist, also in its unusual proportion relative to the Holy Family group. It called, and this tellingly, the composition is regularly called from the 18th century on, the Madonna of the Long Thigh which is this wonderful acknowledgement of how unnatural that observation of reality is all behind it, is all in, implied in it and stretched beyond, and the imagination and the artifice are beginning to exceed the plausible, uh, plausible um, recognizable form. The four drawings in the exhibition just the four, again, the fifth is on its way to Rome. Each of the four drawings in the exhibition is preparatory for a major work by Raphael. Now, wonderful case is the earliest. This drawing is a preparatory study, an approaching final preparatory study for the St. George, as you see. In the middle, I'm also showing you a second preparatory study by Raphael's own hand. The sequence was surely this. These must have been preceded by what would have been preceded by many other studies of individual figures, and certainly at least one preceding compositional study in which the basic motif, the basic action was being worked out. And what this drawing, it's in very sad condition. Fortunate for us, it appeared at auction and because of the condition was practically ignored. And it's my predecessor, Andrew Robinson and Meg Griselli, who very, who brilliantly recognized what it was. It was identified, but recognized its importance potential. It was acquired for terribly little, now about 20 years ago. And it is preparing the modeling, anticipating the modeling uh, the fall of light and how volumes will be created in the eventual panel painting. The drawing in the middle is in the Uffizi, and as you see, it's incredibly detailed, pure line work, and that is the drawing from which the panel itself was prepared. Our drawing has its contours. You can't see very well in this image, but I'll point out to it, and when you look in the gallery, note, the contours have been scored that is, a fine stylus run across them. 
And that would have been the way that Raphael would have transferred that design. It was a simple expedient for transferring the basic lines of that composition to another sheet, very likely the Uffizi sheet. The Uffizi sheet is then pricked for transfer. Along the principal contours, there are fine pin marks along which Raphael then would have pounced a little bag of crushed black chalk and pounced so that the design from that drawing would have been transferred to the panel. So though a wreck wonderfully significant and already beginning to tell of how meticulous and systematic Raphael's process is. That's part of what G22 or small, modest, I'll say small, modest exhibition is about, is Raphael's process and how systematic. And then the cartoon, the cartoon for the Belle Jardiniere. Cartoon, as you know, means the full-size final study for the usually cartoons are for larger scale works, that is for fresco paintings, uh, for grand compositions, and they allow the artist himself and his workshop to effectively transfer, faithfully transfer uh, the composition to that surface at actual scale. Um, this, cart the, the gallery's cartoon here on the left, is composed of four principal sheets. It's heavily, it's been heavily varnished over the years, and it has all kinds of uh, condition issues. It is a miracle to have it at all. There are probably, I think it's only about two dozen Raphael cartoons or fragments of cartoons that are preserved. This is one of the rare cases where the entire composition is preserved. Usually it's a fragment or only part. This is the entire composition. And when you look very carefully in the gallery, we've tried to adjust the light so that you can see it better than usual. Usually the varnishes and the damage obscure it too much. Um, but when you look very carefully along certain contours, and especially I found here through this arm, you will see it pricked as well. That is the drawing, that is the surface from which the Belle Jardiniere, Belle Jardiniere, that's its traditional title because the Virgin was thought so beautiful and there in this lovely landscape, she is interpreted, or she has been called affectionately, the beautiful gardener. Um, and that is the sheet from that. Those are the sheets from which that painting in the Louvre was created. Let me add, there's one more Raphael important exhibition to celebrate this centennial. And it actually goes beyond 2020. And this will be early 2021 in Milan at the Biblioteca Ambrosiana, which has the greatest, not just the greatest, Raphael cartoon. It is by far the greatest cartoon in existence. It is 28 feet wide, composed of I do not know how many sheets, scores of dozens of sheets. And that is the cartoon for Raphael's School of Athens. That has been restored painstakingly and beautifully over the past six years. The Ambrosiana didn't rush on this occasion is organizing an exhibition, this will be March, April, um, of all the cartoons that lenders are willing to concede to the exhibition. We will be sending uh, the, our cartoon for Belle Jardiniere, and she will be paired with the Louvre's painting. The Louvre has already agreed to lend the painting to that exhibition. So that in addition to Rome and London, Milan early 20, early 2020. Third drawing. Self-evident, but of increasingly complicated technique relative to the first two, study for 
this section of Raphael's frescoes, these are all his frescoes above a chapel. There is a lower story here in the church of Santa Maria della Pace in Rome. They are part of a chapel that was a possession of Agostino Chigi, powerful banker, one, the most powerful banker in Rome, one of the most powerful in Europe at the time, who was one of Raphael's, was Raphael's most enthusiastic patron other than the two popes. Um, that commissioned by Chigi for this, his family chapel, probably around 1510, 1511. It shows at the lower level, uh, Sibyls, and upper level, these are prophets. The drawing is, would have been, the immediately preceding stage to a cartoon. You see the level of finish, it's practically pictorial, and not just pictorial, the figures are extraordinarily monumental. This is because, and it's a capital case, at least in drawing, of Raphael assimilating, as I mentioned before, assimilating the styles of other artists. Vasari tells of Raphael sneaking into the Sistine Chapel where Michelangelo is at work on the ceiling by night, and Vasari elaborates in typical fashion the rivalry between the two of them, Michelangelo's resentment of this young, this younger by 10, 12 years upstart, and Raphael already incredibly ambitious and absorbing everything in sight and already favored by Pope Julius. And the, I won't say the result, that's too facile, but the kind of monumental form and presence, especially of that figure, probably Isaiah, that is response to Michelangelo, and the drawing captures that. So penultimate stage of preparation, elaborate technique, as you see, and squared for transfer, which I'm sure, I'm sure you, you know what that means. That is the typical means of any artist of the period, and really well on into the 19th century, of transferring a design from one scale to another. Upon the design, upon the composition, if you draw a regular grid, and you draw a regular grid on the surface to which you would surface, or it could be another drawing, but typically it is the surface, a, a, a fresco surface, a wall surface, or a canvas, um, then you can transfer element by element and ensure the basic coherence of the same design you've developed to this extent, small scale. So that drawing has that significance, even more of Raphael's process process in assimilating, responding to other styles, and pros working process, procedure. And the fourth drawing is preparatory in exactly once, what sense I don't think has been adequately explained. You'll see in the gallery, it is a tiny, tiny sheet, about like that. It comes from a much larger sheet that would have been some stage of preliminary thought toward one of the 10 cartoons that Raphael created for tapestries to adorn the lower story of the Sistine Chapel. Tapestries, which some of you may have read, there's a good, good notice in our newspaper, I don't know uh, where else it may have reached, but those, the tapestries that come from cartoons like this one on the right, one of seven that survive in the Victorian Albert Museum in London, those surviving tapestries are I can't say the last time, but it's certainly the first time in centuries those tapestries are currently exhibited in the Sistine Chapel in their intended place. Well, our drawing is, or the fragment that we have, is 
in some strict relationship to that group of apostles in the scene of Christ calling or consigning the keys of the church to St. Peter. Um, what's extraordinary about it, any one of these works by Raphael can be riffed on, glossed on to explain, you know, the, the demonstrate uh, the peculiarities, the force of his own genius. What's extraordinary to me on th is that on this scale, and even so fragmentary, you have not even half the figures, but you feel their presence. You feel a monumentality to each. You feel you can read a space, a coherent space, even when it's just this kind of superimposition. And just as remarkable, and here again, it's that complete interweaving or, or coextension of form and feeling, form and ethos. The behaviors, the interaction of these figures on tiny scale, it is a monumental work in both senses of form and expression on a tiny scale. Now, four drawings there in the gallery, and what they signal, and this is where the exhibition, I think, offers more than just those works and more than just working procedure. They signal, they don't begin to essay adequately, and nothing could exhaust. The argue, there may be four different, different censuses of Raphael's drawings. Some scholars have insisted on as few as 400 extant drawings. Others have pushed that to about 600. In any case, Raphael is the father of the system of drawing that then is the standard for European art to this day. Now, it is essential and more literally embraced and followed within that classical to then academic extreme. But it is still fundamental to how any artist or anyone trying to represent anything and develop a representation approaches drawing. By which I mean, he didn't invent it, but he invented the standard. The, the invention of that system of drawing, a systematic approach to how to translate internal idea of a complex subject into a complex and well-resolved and well-executed composition, that begins in the great workshops of Florence of the late 15th century. We've just seen in Verrocchio. Verrocchio's workshop was one of the most important. And out of that workshop comes and refines that system of drawing Leonardo, taking it in his own direction. Michelangelo comes out of the shop of Domenico Ghirlandaio, whose probably most beautiful, most complex drawing in existence here on the left in the British Museum. Uh, Michelangelo comes right out of that. The drawing by Domenico Ghirlandaio here is of the late eh, mid to late 1580s, a preparatory study for a composition in fresco in the church of Santa Maria Novella in Florence, which I'm sure many of you have visited. That is the moment when that systematic approach evolves. And that could be another talk of sort of how and why at that moment. Shortest version is that it is the moment at which the ambition for more complex subject matter, more complex representation emerges, and it, it doesn't force, it encourages that kind of systematic approach to developing representation. That's where it begins. Raphael differentiates that system. 
in terms of material, in terms of stages of evolution of the design. You've seen some of the stages, again, just in those four drawings. Um, Rothfield develops that, differentiates it more, and makes it more systematic than by far than any artist to that point, and that is the system that rules from that point forward. This is one of these grand significances in the history of Western art, great, great moments. It's part of uh, what I think is a good, a solid answer to why should we care about Raphael or why should we care about Raphael drawings? They're famous, his name is famous. Why should one look at, care about, think about Raphael drawings? It's because they are fundamental to how the Western imagination is translated into material, still fundamental. That system is immediately put to personal use and the overwhelming demonstration of how systematic it is and how broadly applicable it can be by Raphael's shop and the masters of their own distinctive personality who join that shop in the late second decade of the 16th century and take different modes, different materials, different techniques in their own directions. The exhibition has choice examples, at least two choice examples by each of the three principles. And here is really the greatest, it's one of the greatest drawings in existence by Giulio Romano, his principal assistant during those last years in Rome, of Roman origin, an artist of even more extravagant, of extravagant personality. Here, St. Michael slaying, killing the devil. At the upper right, you see what would be a more conventional treatment of that subject. A St. Michael, grand, elegant, standing, crushing, trampling the devil. As in one of Raphael's most famous paintings of those same years, 15, 16, 17, a great painting that is sent to Francis I of France, you see to this day in the Louvre. Giulio Romano has translated it into something visceral, intensely rhythmic, intensely characterized in the expression, I mean, look, this is almost, there's a theatricality in this face, theatricality in the devil, and fantastic rhythms. I mean, if one only had this passage, look at that marvelous tangle. Tangle of form and tangle of pen work. This is Giulio, is an extravagance, a willfulness, and his own way of pushing, emphasizing the artifice at the expense of something that is more plausible or that one could imagine experiencing in one's own life. That's Giulio. And then there's Perino, Perino del Vaga, Florentine. Beautiful and beautifully preserved drawing. Again in the exhibition, it is from the very end of Perino's career. He's the longest lived of Raphael's principal assistants. So long lived that after a long sojourn in Genoa, he's back in Rome when Rome is coming back to life in the 1540s, after the sack, 1527, and Rome is pretty moribund for the 1530s, comes back to spectacular artistic and cultural life in the 40s. Perino and the workshop focused, centered in the Castel Sant'Angelo, the papal fortress, um, is really central to that revival and central to Roman culture in those years. This is a great drawing preparatory for one of his frescoes in the Castel Sant'Angelo. At that point, however, let's say, um, evocative of the antique and an antique low relief the drawing may be with that wonderful use of wash. The line work is still, still epitomizes Perino's own personality, which is one given to, first, 
lovely, light weight on the pen nib, almost opposite to Giulio Romano in this sense. Giulio can't resist greater, greater uh, visceralness, greater physical presence. Perino is all about a fineness, beautiful, beautiful sense of design, impeccable sense of design, but a fineness of touch, a fineness of articulation, fingers, can't resist a little extra ornamental flourish. That's Perino within this language that Raphael created, his own mode within it. Or then, my own favorite, I confess, um, a, an artist of North Italian origin named Polidoro Caldara, his proper last name, called Polidoro da Caravaggio. Now Caravaggio because from the same small town in Bergamasque, the territory of Bergamo, from which the Caravaggio came. But Polidoro is his own genius and a remarkable genius at the time. He arrives in Raphael's workshop really as a tradesman and quickly evolves into the most influential of all the fresco painters in Rome in the early second decade, that eve of the sack of Rome, exterior frescoes, most of which have been destroyed by time. If they were extant, we would still marvel at him as one of the greatest artists of the Renaissance. He is, in the cases that survive, of an extraordinarily intense and almost expressionistic personality, still within that language of Raphael. This is the point. Raphael's is systematic. You don't have this kind of thing with Michelangelo Leonardo. You can't. Their visions, their hands are singular. Raphael is systematic. And that system can accommodate, readily be adapted to other languages. Graphic, same applies for painting, but it's even more, even more for drawing. Polidoro's expressionism, and here I'd really like to go on at length, but I won't. Um, we don't even know what this scene is. It's preparatory fresco in the Palazzo Baldassini in Rome. It's early 1520s, 1520, 21. We have the document, uh, document uh, of, of its commission, but we don't know the exact subject. What's clear is this is a bed with a figure, probably male, and an imploring, a concerned and imploring figure. How do we read that? And think back to Raphael and the wonderful I won't say explicitness, but the wonderful clarity with which we read feeling, at least in mature Raphael. Polidoro, it's all conveyed by posture, or it's conveyed by a wonderfully elliptic, pathetic face looking out to the viewer, or it's conveyed even more expressionistically by the kind of distortion of the perspective of the bed. I mean, look at this. We read it as a bed, but here's the foot of the bed, which is dead center primary area element of the drawing. And then, Wonderful, I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that, pardon me, but this wonder, this furious action with the red chalk. That's Polidoro within this same system of drawing of Raphael. And that just to put a fine point on it. On the left is one of the most magnificent of all old master drawings. Uh, you probably recognize it. Some of you may have seen it in the flesh. It's in the uh, Ashmolean Museum at Oxford, part of its great, probably greatest single collection of Raphael drawings in existence. It is a preparatory study by Raphael for the Transfiguration, his last altarpiece, 1520, an altarpiece finished in part by Giulio Romano. And there on the right is another image I uh, cribbed from the internet, in this case from a YouTube drawing lesson. Raphael's drawing is alive. <laughs> 
His system is still fundamental. His approach to form through drawing is still fundamental. And that's one of, I think, the, the, the big lessons of our modest, again, not to say small, exhibition next door. The other big lesson about Raphael and his significance and his fame <coughs> derives from the prince in the exhibition. Raphael is not the first. It's much like drawing, much like the system of drawing. He's not the first to recognize that prints have the potential for translating and disseminating composition and motifs as multiples. But he is the first to exploit it and exploit it immediately on a huge scale. Marcantonio Raimondi, an engraver from around Bologna, reaches Rome around 1509-1510. He's responsible for the image you see, the engraving you see on the left. Marcantonio enters into some kind of exclusive relationship. It's not documented. There's all kinds of interpretations of what the relationship must have been. In any case, it is a strict and exclusive relationship over the course of the next decade. Marcantonio executes toward 200 engravings, nearly all of them after compositions by Raphael. There are two basic types, and here you see one. There are those engravings by Marcantonio that interpret alternative designs for Raphael's paintings. There is no one engraving that is absolutely convincingly identified as a translation of a, of a finished painting. What, these, what this group proposes, as in this case, related to there on the right, is the scene of Apollo and the Muses on Parnassus in the Stanza della Segnatura, the first of the, uh, the uh, rooms in the, in the papal apartments. And Marcantonio, you'll see the, you readily see the differences. Basic composition, absolutely clear, right down to the window around which the composition is organized. There is Apollo, Muses. You see it's a more partitive conception. Here, there's greater inter interrelation of figures, relation of figures one to another, and a flow of the composition about the space. Here, it is a little more rectilinear, the groups a little more discrete, distinct from, from one another and so forth, and all kinds of variation of detail. This group or category of engraving by Marc Antonio is a, a small one, and it seems to propose, or quite certainly proposes, what were alternative designs, drawings by Raphael at that advanced stage of compositional preparation, which implies or makes clear two things, that Raphael wanted to be known not merely the finished painting, but also his other designs related to the commission, related to the project, alternative ways of thinking. Again, this mind that is about the research of composition, the research of representation. Um, and the other implication, that there was an interest in and a market for seeing such variations, possessing such variations. It's through Marc Antonio's engravings first, and this collaboration between Marc Antonio and Raphael, that Raphael's composition became the common coin, first of Italian art and then of European art. The more common and the even more influential kind of engraving by Marc Antonio after Raphael 
is of original designs, designs that exist only in the form of engraving and for which in many cases, some cases, like this Massacre of the Innocents, perhaps Raphael's most famous engraved composition, there is a marvelously detailed and differentiated sequence of preparation. Um, this, as you see, Massacre of the Innocents, but the, 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 the blood, the guts, the Sturmendrang are suppressed or contained by an extraordinarily calculated, equilibrated composition. And we don't have time to explore it, but we could go even beyond where we went with the Alba Madonna in terms of axes, in terms of rhyme. I mean, just take this executioner, that executioner. This is Raphael intent on showing every possible posture, attitude, behavior of a figure within this kind of dramatic scene and how to calibrate architecture space setting to that. And this is an extraordinarily influential composition. This is fundamental right into the 19th century, but certainly for that species of Baroque classicism like a Poussin. And it's not just Marc Antonio, it's his two principal followers and others of a half generation later, but his two principal followers, one, an engraver from Venice named Agostino dei Musi, but called Agostino Veneziano from Venice, who assimilates Marcantonio's language, just as Giulio Romano, Perino, Polidoro interpreted Raphael's language and drawing. Agostino works within that same language with his own distinctive variations, his own idiom within that language to interpret Raphael compositions, but also compositions by Raphael's leading followers. In this case, it's a composition, it's traditionally attributed to Raphael, but it in fact, for all of its vigor and all of its rhythm, I think you could see it, it, it is uh, certainly by Giulio Romano. So here, once removed both on the design, once removed on the execution of the engraving, to give you a sense of how corporate, collective and corporate, not just systematic, but collective and corporate, Raphael's art and art making were. And just as with the hand, the drawing hand from YouTube carrying forward, Mark Antonio's engravings, I, I, wish, I wish I invented this, but this, this, is, this is an old saw you probably remember from Art History 101, but it's, it's, it is terribly meaningful. Um, and it's wonderfully illustrative of just how enduring the influence of Raphael's compositions, especially because of how they were conveyed by engravings. Of his own time, of his own orchestration, Raphael the great empresario, and great self-promoter, of course. Right, I don't need to identify. And your laughter, of course, you recognize. It is that group from The Judgment of Paris, which is one of those compositions like The Massacre of the Innocents, known only as an engraving. There is no such painting by Raphael. Um, marvelous invention, epitomizing the height of his maturity, the height of his new classicism. Manet, it's one of the more literal citations, at least in modern or early modern art, of a Raphael composition. And that is, of course, because of Manet's temperament and Manet's relationship and polemic relative to exactly that dominant tradition, the academy and classical art. And so the violence or the, um, the irony toward Raphael influence that specific motif 
is just as potent, would have been just as potent to a, an educated 19th century viewer in Paris as the fact of these draped males with the uh, ambiguously undraped female and all the other things we also learn in Art History 101. Raphael Essential also in counterpoint if one is going to talk about the avant-garde and what emerges and what still governs our, many of our priorities, one has to know Raphael. One has to see Raphael to understand the essence, the foundation of what everything has worked uh, against. And this, which I, I could simply take my phone from my pocket or any of you and Google any Raphael or any Sistine Putti or anything else you like, but Mark Antonio and Raphael's collaboration and this production of multiple imagery and the distribution of those images and how they affected how Western art and West educated Western public received, responded to, absorbed images from that point forth how that distribution of images shaped the Western imagination and all art making, for better and for worse, from that point forward. That continues to this day. Raphael and Marc Antonio's collaboration is the most distant, identifiable ancestor of what we live with, of how we receive, of how we live with images. And that's another part of this answer, why Raphael? Why old masters? But why Raphael? Why engraving? Reproductive engraving? Something erudite, something obscure? No, this is the ancestor of how we live and think and look and experience the world. Nothing short of that. And just one more return, I've, I've, I've touched on it. And I'm sure it's already apparent to you even when I touched on it. Leonardo's vision, Michelangelo's vision are singular. They convince us of their own genius and how they see the world, and they are wondrous, without any question. But with Raphael, and this is the, I think, the biggest or at least the most, uh, for me, in terms of contemporary society and our experience, not just visual experience, the most important lesson that Raphael's genius is of a fundamentally different kind. And to look at his art and to think about his approach to representation, the system with which he approached the making of art and then the distribution of art, this is a very different kind of artistic genius from that of Leonardo and Michelangelo. And in an age of celebrity um, and the celebration of celebrity, including great anniversaries or lesser anniversaries, Raphael's is that kind of genius that is too um, unfamiliar or slips from our appreciation too easily. But there is the, the argument to be made, or I think the demonstration to be made, that that genius is at least as important and much more pervasive and ultimately uh, more meaningful than the singular geniuses we admire of the other two giants of the high renaissance. Thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.